I am excited to introduce our guest today, none other than Sam Callahan. We will be joined later by our second special guest. Sam, welcome to the show. How are you doing? No, don't put him on yet. No, take him out. Not, I don't, yeah, there we go. Good. What's up? Pete? He's still in timeout. We're mad at Pete. What's wrong? I'm with always you, here. Is he okay? All right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll clue you in on what, what has happened. So about a month and a half ago, my co-host of this show, the letter that comes before Q in the alphabet, promised everyone that he would eat shoe leather if the Ethereum merge went through in just the month of September. And look, to be honest, I really didn't think it was going to happen. I thought it was like a, a very sound bet for him to make. But lo and behold, here we are. And conveniently, on the day of the merge, P was nowhere to be found. And for the last five days, we've been so worried. I've been on the phone with the police all over his hometown, his new hometown. I've been on the phone with his parents, not a single phone call or text all weekend while we're worried sick. And then he just shows up like nothing happened. Nope. We're mad at you, P. Look, I had some deep research to do. I really looked at myself in the mirror and the determination I came to is that I need to make good on my promise. The fact that the Ethereum quote unquote merge, which is really just a hard fork by another name, is totally bullshit is beside the point. So I want you to know I went and toured several leather factories. I have my my setup right here, which I'm, I'm going to demonstrate for you in just a moment. Sam, I want your thoughts also. Just beautiful microphone. Electro Voice RE20. Way to go, my friend. So look, I mean, you'll see like, you know. <laughs> Not going to work. I'm, gl I'm, I'm glad P has gotten into the spirit of today. Right, As I did mention. Here we go. There we go. We got the fire. It's burning. I'm learning how to cook shoe leather, how to remove the, uh, the dangerous lethal elements like the, uh, the vulcanized rubber, the, the, the patina that they put on the shoe to protect it from water. It's going to be real. Don't, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. So thank you for your so patience, Now that you're, now you're caught up on the, the drama of Bitcoin Magazine Live, Sam, welcome back to the show. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. So in about 19 minutes from now, the FOMC will release their most recent rate hike stuff. I went and found my little stuffed kangaroo that we are going to sacrifice live on air before the minutes become official. And I want to ask you, Sam, at this point in 2022, do you even care anymore? Of, about these FOMC meetings? Please answer I the question, don't, sir. actually. I really, I, I kind of don't. I might have never cared, to be honest with you. You know, I think the Fed is more job-owning than anything. And I think we all know where this is going to lead, which is an eventual pivot. We don't know when that pivot is, but it's they've always pivoted in the past. And usually it happens probably longer than people suspect. And they have gotten the rates up higher than I kind of thought they could. So that that's a testament to them, I guess, with the given debt levels, but I think it just takes time for monetary policy to actually get into the economy. I think there's a lag effect. And so I think we won't really see the effects of it in the real economy until later on, probably Q4, early Q1. You'll start to see things really start to turn in the economy. And then once there's some actual pain, 
then we'll see that the Fed is still spineless and they'll pivot again. So, you know, I expect them to raise rates uh, throughout the rest of the year, really. And I think it's going to be like a 75, 50, 50 kind of thing in terms of November and December too. And so it, I don't really expect that big of shocks right now. So yeah, I don't really care. <laughs> no, this is like in all of our conversations that we've had together, I've come to realize as someone who analyzes the macro environment and writes for Swan and, and does so much great stuff around this type of stuff, you care the absolute least about the political atmosphere and anything that comes out of Jerome Powell's mouth, which I, to a degree, almost admire because me being so anxiety Did he just say that? Did, wait, well, but, but I can't afford a house now. Like I could have afforded a house 12 months ago. I can't anymore. But besides the point, um, I, I want to get a sense from you. Earlier this week, we saw the two-year yields, the two-year treasury bonds shot up to 4% yield. I literally woke up to that news and was like so groggy. I thought I was still asleep because I was like, no, there's, there's no way. Uh, mm -hmm. Here's what your reaction was to seeing such a, such a steep spike to the two-year yield this week. Well, I think it just shows that the bond market, you know, thinks they're not done. And, you know, the Fed has never been so far behind the bond market in terms of its ability to raise. So Wait, I think you, it just can you qualify sorry. that? What do you what do you mean by that? Well, like if you just track like the federal funds rate to the two year, usually they track pretty closely. And right now the two year is way above the federal funds rate. So that's what people mean when they say the Fed is behind the curve. And so really what the bond market is saying is that they think that the Fed needs to, you know, either calm down, you know, or or let these things kind of play out. But the Fed is likely to keep over hiking and will probably overshoot things eventually. But just kind of shows that, you know, the bond market is still seeing that there's, you know, a lot of inflation risk in there and stuff like that. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, people think that it's going to be a 75 bips raise in here in a little bit. There's a potential that it could be an entire one percentage point raise, which would be a very, very steep hike in one meet. But it's because there's this huge gap still between the two year and the federal funds. So people think that they're behind the curve, so to speak. I want to I want to spend some time talking to you about international markets because I know that that's you've spent so much time just studying these things and learning about it. But before we switch over, I do want to just before we go so deep into the doom and gloom, I want to have a little bit of lighthearted positive conversation here. That's cool. We we see hash rate and difficulty hitting new all-time highs, suggesting miners are coming back online. We're seeing minor capitulation seem to slow down or almost end saying, what are some bullish tailwinds that you're seeing for just the broader Bitcoin ecosystem? And I don't give a shit about price because let's be real, it's going to go down and I want cheaper sats. <laughs> well, hash rate going all-time high is definitely positive. I think really that's a function of these miners uh, throughout 2021 who had access to capital and they were able to basically have a bunch of capex and decide that they're going to expand their facilities. And so what we're seeing now is, is those plans start to actually manifest and they're actually plugging in the miners that they had planned, you know, nine, 12 months ago. And there's also supply chains issues. So that hash rate increase, I think it's more of just these large miners finally getting their stuff online rather than like more miners turning 
back on, or if, so to speak. And so that's a good thing. I mean, that's a good thing for the Bitcoin network. I think you're seeing like total supply held by long-term hodlers, you know, hit like an all-time high, which is another positive development. I think it just shows that um, there's a convicted base of hodlers that aren't moving their coins. And it's probably everyone on this call right now is part of that. The other thing is just the, there's still like institutional interest throughout this bear market. Compared to 2018, there really wasn't these you know, developments in the bottom of the bear market. It was really quiet and <laughs> it was kind of sad. I and mean, now you have like news like Fidelity coming out and considering, you know, offering Bitcoin to millions of individual brokerage accounts. You got Franklin Templeton, also almost like a trillion dollar manager, still in the middle of the bear market with Bitcoin down 70%. They're still building out infrastructure for the next bull run. And so that's bullish to me, you know, like it just shows that even despite the price action, there's still excitement and interest at the institutional level and infrastructure being built out. And so that's the kind of things that I like to see. So those three things are probably what I'd say, like hatch rate all time high. That's good. Miners kind of start stop selling, or at least for now. So you can see that with the, uh, what's that indicator called? I'm kind of blanking on it. Charles Edwards came up with it. If Joe was here, he'd know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so it flipped. And so it kind of shows that miners have stopped selling and you got long-term hodlers holding on and then you got institutional interest. So those three things, those are, bu those are bullish uh, developments. So I'm excited about that. So I want to unpack that last one because we had a philosophical debate on the show, P, while you were gone. And like I, I'm curious your opinion as well as Sam's, but I'm going to take this stance going forward. I've already, I've already said it. I'm no longer going to cheer for any corporation, especially a billion plus dollar corporation that turns around and says, we're going to adopt Bitcoin, store Bitcoin, accept Bitcoin, nor am I going to start celebrating or, or applaud high net worth individuals who decide, oh, I'm going to now buy up an allocated percentage of my net worth to Bitcoin. My rationale, quite frankly, is just simply put, if Bitcoin is meant to be the life raft for the people it needs to be in the hands of the people, not these corporations. But maybe I'm just a little too altruistic about this. Rip, rip this argument apart. But let's discuss because I think we've, we may have gone too far in one direction, and it's time to start thinking about longevity and riding the ship a little bit. So, are you more like the cost basis? Like you want the cost basis lower for plebs, or are you more about the decentralization? That is the right question. Look, Q no, has, no, no. Just, <laughs> has just betrayed himself as a fiat bitch, and look, that's okay. <laughs> Sam, you and I can sit on the sidelines and be like, Q, one day you will learn the importance of Bitcoin. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Also, I have to say, the kangaroo that you have like just slightly in frame is terrifying to me. I don't know but, what's going on there. Every time I see more of it, it 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 inspires okay. more anxiety and fear in me. But then let's solve the kangaroo dilemma. Sam, I'm rooting for a hundred basis point rate hike. I just want chaos. I don't think there's enough blood on the streets for me to justify saying, oh, we're gonna see a, a bull market return and I want blood on the streets, quite frankly. So I'm willing to rip the head off of this kangaroo as sacrifice. Wait, what? But what? Oh yeah, like, like kangaroos. That that's your. Uh, I'm sorry, I understood that to be your childhood kangaroo. That's it is brutal. But I need to pray to the financial god that is Jerome Powell and show Respect him what I'm willing him. to sacrifice for the blood on the streets that I hope to see. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, wait. Like oh, jumping back. Jumping back. Oh wait, jumping back. Q, 
I think your question was like, do we need to basic, like you said, you, you are not going to celebrate, you know, large holders or, you know, the JP Morgans or the Black Rocks, like officially being like, yo, Bitcoin is dope because you feel like the average pleb needs to be, needs to have more time to be able to get into the Bitcoin market. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. And, and I'll caveat it by saying like, candidly, if I got no more Bitcoin ever again, like I could live comfortably. I feel like I do Dude, have, what does that have to do with anything because I don't want you to think like, oh, I'm doing this because <laughs> I want cheap. Bitcoin. Like, no, fuck that. I'm doing this because you're like, yo, yo, I'm rich as fuck. Like, don't even trip dog. But it's, it's more from the lens of if all of a sudden you have someone like a Michael Saylor with half a million Bitcoin and you have a company like Apple, Tesla, Google, Microsoft that combined to hold another two and a half million Bitcoin, then all of a sudden you start to have just the same issues I think that we are seeing our society struggle with today be perpetuated even further in a digital age where we're not going to be as reliant, I think, on, how do I say this without sounding like a statist, without certain parameters preventing businesses from taking, I think, advantage of everything that they have hoarded for themselves. You know, I just say like, it's kind of, there's nothing we could do to stop anybody from interacting. You know, it's permissionless. So Fidelity's Michael Saylor, like, people that understand the value proposition first are going to benefit from it, you know? And when Fidelity gets in, it is 34 million individuals brokerage accounts that a lot of times this money's trapped in retirement accounts. It's not like real spot Bitcoin that they're taking, but at least they'll get exposure to the upside if adoption continues and, and the price appreciation happens. Like we think it's, it's better that they have some kind of exposure than nothing. So those are kind of my two initial points. It's 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 kind of like silly because we can't stop them from happening. And then, you know, there's benefits to large players getting on your side. In terms of Bitcoin too, there's like, when you have Fidelity on our side, I mean, that's a that's a large player with a ton of resources, both in DC and, and from a capital standpoint to build out infrastructure for Bitcoin to make the system more robust. So I guess those are my two kind of like counterpoints to it. But I do understand that one of the benefits of a large sideways sideways price action and downwards price action is it does give time for for more individuals to benefit from it and and to benefit from the future price appreciation so that's kind of like a that's a bullish angle to the price action going down <laughs> and uh, i think it's i think it's a prudent one i think it's it makes sense to me and that's why you know a lot of educational efforts are really beneficial right now if if People are keen to listen to it. Unfortunately, a lot of people get into Bitcoin when the price goes up like crazy. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. But if they're doing it now, then they're going to benefit from it. So it's kind of a win-win there. P, your thoughts as you play with your elephant dick, which by the way, Sam, we love your elephant dick as well. Yeah, sorry. I, I noticed that my Bitcoin is upside down and it just immediately inspired fear and panic. I sold all my Bitcoin, then rebought it, took the tax hit, and now I feel silly. But also, yeah, I, I'm I'm going to take us in a completely different direction. Sam, tell us again why why have you imbibed of the RE20 microphone as opposed to the standard SM7B, which we see Q rocking in this in this chat today. 
you know, please, relate it, please relate it back to Bitcoin as well, if you could. <laughs> I got nothing. I literally, I asked Alex, who runs a cafe Bitcoin. I was like, you know, I like substitute for him as a host. I'm like the backup. And I was doing the hosting and I was getting some feedback that I sounded like shit. So we need to change that. <laughs> I've been but there, brother. What his thing was, you know, what's his setup? And, and then I was just like, yo, I'm going to get exactly what Alex says. And they were like, all right, go for it. And so it's solid. Now it's you it. I am what I am. And it's an R20, but yeah, R20. it's an electric it's voice R20. Cool. Yeah. No, 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 like the elephant dick. Yeah. It's the, this, this is the original color, the sort of like military I gray. Like I didn't even think about getting. Oh my that. God. I will trade you this mic in a fucking heartbeat. I regret having this color and I talk about it way too much on the show. The point <laughs> is, look, we are contrarians. Sam, I, I feel a, sen a sense of, 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 you know, uh, com compatriotism with you because everybody uses the SM7B uh, and uh, you know we're using the RE20s the the old school uh, crazy mic that sounds better let's go back to Bitcoin now. Great. You sound it does great. sound great it sounds so good as soon as we shift camera angles I'll rip this mat this uh, little sticker off and reverse it around and it'll look even weirder we could take you off camera we, we got really used to that for the last four days while you just no, went to all of us it all stays it all stays so can you just simplify for, as Q would say, the smooth-brained among us, what is the expectation that people have for this rate, for this potential rate hike? And what are the options available to the Fed? Like, what are we kind of, what are we expect, or like, yeah, what are the, what is the plethora of options they have? And then what are the impacts of the various options that they could take? I think there's probably like, basically like two or three. Is that correct? What options are you like? What What are you referring to? In well, when people say like an 100, an 100 point, uh, you know, basis point hike, like what are the what are the options that we think are sort of possible, reasonable, and then what impact do we expect that to have on the on the uh, the markets? Oh well, in, in like in like a couple sentences, like I know we've been talking, we've literally been talking about this in a deep dive for the last like thirty minutes. Can I but can like, I change your question just a little bit? Please, please do. Where are the like? We talked a little bit about how this is going to be sort of a lagging indicator of where the points of failure are going to be in the economy. Can you highlight maybe one or two areas of the economy that you're going to be paying attention to? I'll share two of my own. Obviously, unemployment, because that's everything that the Fed keeps citing as far as their sort of motivation for a lot of things. And I'm really trying to pay attention to just the housing market in general, that has historically been a nice little leading indicator for us and doesn't look pretty to me as someone who's been looking to buy a house for some time. And yes, this yep. does mean that the run of Q in his mother's basement is coming to an end. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your digital assets. Collateralized loans are great for living expenses, buying a car, or even for when you just have to have that sweet Rolex. But what isn't so great is when you then lose the ability to trade your assets once your loan has been taken out. So just like you, Moon Mortgage believes you should be able to have your cake and eat it too. Moon Mortgage's Trade and Borrow is the world's first digital asset loan margin account, allowing you to instantly trade your Bitcoin while borrowing against your account, all with next to zero insolvency risk no origination fees, nor any third-party risk, as Moon Mortgage will never lend out your digital assets. Welcome to the future of collateralized lending. Visit moonmortgage.io today to learn how you can trade, borrow, and then trade your digital assets some more. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global. 
with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Yeah, you know, the, the options are basically, I mean, they could do whatever they want, I guess, but like what the likely options are, are 75 bips or 100 bips. And the CPI print last week really freaked people out. They, I think a lot of people expected it to be lower than it was, but it came in higher. And so a lot of people, the expectations for the Fed hike kind of jumped up and the probabilities increased for the potential of a 100 bips increase. But I think 75 is probably what I would bet. And if that's the case, then, you know, we're going to see continued pressure on really all risk assets, I believe. Right now, really any kind of economic indicator that you look at, it's it doesn't look good. <laughs> I mean, last week, you know, for instance, consumer sentiment came in at the lowest ever. Housing affordability is the worst ever. And as you continue to tighten policy, it just puts further pressure on, on everything because the discount rate, when that goes up, the way that they kind of value stocks, it's it's probably going to have more pressure to go down. So if we see an increase in rates, we're likely to see more pressure on the stock market. I expect that to go down over time, especially as some of these economic indicators start to show up in earnings. And so I'm kind of looking at two things. Like I'm also looking at the housing market. I think it's starting to roll over. It has been rolling over for a while. And so there's a lot of different things you can look at. You can look at purchase applications every week. You can look at just the Case-Shiller price index rolling over. I like the looking at rents on Zillow. Um, and so, and then the housing affordability index came out last week. And so it was the worst ever, like I said. And so I like to look at all those things. And then as you kind of take a broader picture, it kind of tells you where we're probably heading. And when you look at abroad and geopolitical risks and all kinds of issues going on, it, it's, it's a bleak outlook. And I'm not trying to like paint rosy, a rosy picture when there's not one, you know, cycles are normal and we're not very used to recessions because of the Fed coming in to bail everyone out every time it's happened. But this is normal and it's actually healthy for a long-term economy. And so I expect this to be kind of longer than people expect, honestly. And then the other thing I'm looking at is I, I like looking at the move index, which is a measure of bond volatility for a couple of reasons. It, it kind of gives you a measure of kind of the risk in the credit markets. And then it also, the liquidity in the, in the credit market. So if it's more volatile, it kind of gives you a sense that the bond market's more liquid. And if the bond market's more liquid, 
It shows that there's kind of the economy slowing down and there's a lot of risks. And so if we see the bond market start to really blow up and become very illiquid, you know, that could be one thing that could cause the Fed to pivot. But I think maybe that's not coming uh, for a while. Like, I, I don't think that's really coming in like the next couple of months, unless there's some like catastrophic, you know, blow up like black swan kind of thing. Like that's always a possibility in this uncertain environment. But uh, bearing that, uh, you know, I'm kind of just, sit, I think things are going to stay like status quo for a while. And we're going to continue to see downward pressure across risk assets. I'm going to interrupt real quick to just say we have official word that it is a 75 basis point rate hike. So I, I've lost track now of how many times the market, like the odds of that FOMC calculator that gives us like, oh, it's 75% chance of 75 basis point or 25 for 100 or whatever. I genuinely think that that has been correct every single meeting this year. Yeah, it's pretty and, and that, but, and I presented this question one time to Dylan and Sam, and it's getting me to a point where I really don't understand why the Fed exists if the market is kind of telling the Fed what it wants to be done and what it's expecting. I understand the history behind the Fed, but the markets have very much taken control over these rate hikes, it seems. Is that an accurate way of depicting sort of? what we've seen transpire over the course of just this calendar year. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why does the Fed exist? You know, that's, that's a big question. And, you know, I think financial markets have like dictated their policy decisions really since Greenspan started to bail everyone out with the Greenspan put the Fed has basically responded to financial markets. And so I think that's why, you know, these probabilities, the Fed, over the last 30 years, they've just responded to the markets and, and just listened to them and tried not to piss them off too much. It's been a long time. It's been since Volcker, since they like went against the market's expectations and did what, what they felt was right with their dual mandates. So I think it's that's why these like probabilities in the markets and the CME probabilities has been so accurate because the Fed really does look at the markets like there's an ongoing joke that after these fed meetings and they announce the the monetary policy that they immediately go back to their bloomberg terminals and, and look at the markets to see how they're reacting <laughs> so you know that's what this like fed insider said a few months back and i i tend to believe them so you know i just think that it's become ingrained in their decision making process and when really it's not really a part of their mandate but you could say it's a shadow third mandate so I think that's why the probabilities are so accurate. We're going to pull up an image now of the FOMC target rates pretty much from 2002 through 2005. And I, I was just looking at this and what really surprised me is the 2023 sort of dot plot range. For our viewers, in a second, we will pull this image up. It essentially shows you each of the different Fed members sort of anticipations of where they expect the rates to be on each of these years. And if that's not the case, Sam, you are so welcome to tell me I'm an idiot on my own show, because if I am wrong about that, I'm an idiot. But it looks as though next year, they're anticipating an approach to 5%. And there's no anticipated slowdown until 2024. Mind you, these are forecasts. These are 
projections that always change. I'm a little perplexed and almost surprised to see such a high number for next year. My guess, my best guess is they are anticipating a prolonged level of Fed funds rate being at this level will bring inflation lower. And in turn, if inflation can get below the Fed's fund rate, then they will feel confident that their work has been successful and they can slowly begin to lower rates and i.e. pump liquidity back into the markets. Sam, where did I go wrong? What don't you agree with? How crazy am I? And this is the, the image we're talking about here. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't see it before. Yeah. These are just like expectations. So I actually, they're usually not <laughs> that accurate. So you know, anyone guess, but you know, I think that's what it shows is that this latest CPI print, it, it just kind of changed a lot of expectations because before a lot of people thought that they would start to pivot like mid 2023 and now it's been pushed back and now it's been pushed back. And, and so what they expect to happen, not just that they'll raise rates more, but that they'll keep it higher longer. And that's where they could run into problems because like, the, I don't think the markets can really handle interest rates at these levels for a long time. And that's kind of what these expectations are saying. They're, they're expecting Jerome Powell to raise rates and then keep them at these levels for an extended period of time. And I think as like debt rolls over and they'll have to refinance at these higher interest rates, you really start to see feel pain like in the corporate level as as they try to roll over their debt and then they have to pay a lot more because interest rates are so much higher and a lot of these companies are leveraged to the teeth a lot of these companies are zombie companies and so they'll, they'll really struggle with that if they keep interest rates at this level as they continue to reduce their balance sheet with quantitative tightening and so it's kind of a double whammy because not only are the financing costs higher but also they're removing liquidity out of the system at the same time and so i think that things would break before that. And that's when the real a pivot's going to happen. The pivot will not happen unless things get really bad. And that's like when people say a Fed pivot's going to happen, it, it kind of can't happen until something bad happens right before it. Because if things just stay the status quo right now, like they can take this demand destruction and they can take another 10, 15% down on the stock market. But if things get really bad and unemployment starts to spike and all these things kind of uh, bankruptcies start to happen and, and all these problems start to happen, then we'll get a pivot. And that'll happen if they keep interest rates at this level for a long period of time with these debt levels. And so that's kind of how I see it. It's just kind of each time the CPI prints remains elevated and doesn't come down in a meaningful way, I bet you're going to see these expectations continue to increase a little bit and they'll say, okay, this is going to last longer and longer and longer. But you know, I, I just can't see a scenario where they can keep rates at these levels for a long period of time without things starting to get really challenging for these businesses. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, it does. I wonder though, and this is your least favorite topic in question, but oh, if, shit, you, if you would entertain me for a moment, we do have midterms in less than mm -hmm. two months now. Do you anticipate any decisions from either Congress or the White House as far as an economic scope is concerned for the sake of just strengthening their case to be reelected? Not in any sort of, this is actually going to help the economy in any way, understanding fully that this is strictly to get more votes, mm -hmm. which I'll be the first to admit was definitely huge implication of their decision to provide student loan debt relief. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I feel like they've already done that. I, thought, I felt like they did that with student loans. And then I feel like they're doing that with releasing the strategic petroleum reserve right now to try to keep gas prices low. So it's an emergency for them because, you know, they need the votes. But really, that should only be done in a real energy emergency. And right now, in, in the United States, at least, you know, we don't really have that. So, <laughs> you know, it's bad. There's rising. The, the gas prices are higher from a couple of years ago. But it's not like we're Europe right now and they are draining that reserve at a rapid rate to try to, you know, as a political talking point. And that's what you see Biden going and they're, Oh, gas prices are so low. They have to have something because everything else isn't looking so good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think those two things, the student loans and the strategic petroleum reserve getting drained. I think that's what you're seeing. And I don't really know if much is going to happen outside of those two things. I think barring some, Again, things could change really rapidly in this environment. If something like really bad happened, you would probably get Congress and politicians coming out pretty rapidly saying stimulus checks, like we need this if, if things really start to break down. But I don't really see that happening before midterms. That's only in what, like a, a month or month and a half or so. So yeah, I think it already happened, Q. Fair, fair. I, I was just hoping for, I don't know, something to really break because to your point, I don't think we've reached that point of maximum pain, at least on this country. But let's hop on over the pond. We had Putin actually release a statement or give a speech earlier this morning, last night. To be honest, it was delayed a couple of times. So I, I have no idea when he actually said these words. But it looks like based on his speech and, and the translations I was able to read, that they are going to call upon all of the Russian military members who are in reserves to now come forward and, and sort of begin to join the war efforts, hearing that Russia is not slowing down these war efforts, given where Europe is in their energy crisis, how bad are things about to get in Europe? What are you paying attention to out of Europe right now? Yeah. So what I focus on in terms of Europe is this, this energy crisis just kind of worsens a crisis that was already happening. And it's really the ECB and, and how trapped they were compared to other central banks. They were the slowest to kind of start raising interest rates. You know, inflation was already at historic highs in the Eurozone. And they were at negative interest rates since 2014. And then they have a ton of debt problems, specifically in the peripheral countries, Italy, Greece, Spain. And and so they're in a tricky situation because they can't raise rates without causing kind of a risk, increased risk of a sovereign debt crisis similar to what happened in the early 2010s. And so immediately when they said they were going to raise rates, you started to see the spreads between Italian bonds and the German bonds start to really widen, and it really freaked them out. And so that was just when they announced that they might raise rates. And then they went ahead with it. They finally raised rates in July. And then they announced some like emergency program that will they an unlimited targeted QE to basically plug that hole in Italy as they try to fight the same battle of, of fighting inflation on the other side. And so those are at odds with each other because they're printing money to keep the yields down in Italy while they try to fight inflation by raising interest rates. And all of this happened while the energy crisis is going on. And when you do have the energy crisis going on, you have the governments of Europe subsidizing that. So they're printing money and giving it to their citizens to help them with the costs, the increased cost of their energy bills. And you can't really blame them. Like, you know, they're, 
these people are really struggling and they're trying to prevent a a string of bankruptcies from happening and something really, really much worse from happening. But they're at odds with the central bank who are trying to combat inflation. And so this is the problem with Europe because you have a monetary union, but you have governments that have disparate economies and disparate fiscal policies. And so even in the last you know, two weeks, I've been trying to keep track of all this, but you had the UK government freeze gas and electricity bills. So that's till 2024. It's estimated to be $180 billion or like 6% of their GDP. And so they're spending. You have Germany basically combined. They've they printed 95 billion euros to help their citizens and some of their businesses. You had Sweden and Finland basically provide guarantees of 33 billion euros to utility companies to prevent defaults. You had Switzerland come out and save two of their energy producers with about $7 billion euros. You had Austria. They, they're, I think that's 500 euros per year they're giving till 2024. That's going to cost them about 4 billion euros. You had Dutch come out the other day, do something similar. And then you had Greece come out the other day, and that's going to cost another billion dollars. So all of these governments are spending money at a time of historic inflation and at a time when the ECB is trying to raise rates to fight this inflation without causing a sovereign debt crisis. So I don't mean to laugh. It's just, it's, it's a really tricky situation and it's, it's, it's terrible, man. And, and I, I see it as the weakest link in the, the whole fiat system. And so that's why I've been like really paying attention to it. And then this energy crisis that has really gripped the financial community and for good reason, you know, that's just kind of added to all, all of these problems. And so, you know, Joe Wisenthal, the, the dude from Bloomberg, I think he said it best. He said, money printer go burr, so households don't go burr. And that's, I think that's what's happening going into the winter. And it's, it puts them in a really difficult situation, especially if you're the ECB. I want to just say, because I don't think your laughter was like in jest or making fun of, but like, this is genuinely, it's such a scary conversation to have that this isn't a random developing nation that you have never heard of before. This is a whole continent of Europe where let's be honest, the vast majority of white Americans can trace their ancestry back to that continent. And we are like, I'm almost curious what you think, like who is really at fault here? Because on the one hand, you have the citizens actually asking for this. You have the citizens asking for the subsidies, asking the government to step step in and, and save their businesses, save their energy bills from being too overwhelming while at the same time, you have multiple iterations of the French government, the Boris Johnson-led UK government, various other governments all across Europe were offered opportunities to sit down and end the war with Russia and Ukraine and instead opted to join the US side to continue to add fuel to the fire. And now they're almost seeing their citizens say, hey, wait, time out. We actually can't afford to be in this war because I need to stay warm. And do you think there can be a breaking point and a disconnect in Europe between what the citizens citizens want and what their government leaders will inevitably do? Or do you think their government leaders will end up caving for better or worse and subsidizing energy costs and trying to make whatever happens on within their own sort of jurisdictions 
appeasable and tolerable while still propagating this war over in Eastern Europe? Yeah, well, I think I think ultimately the biggest risk for them is mass, you know, political turmoil, chaos, and civil unrest. And so the civilians, there's already been protests, there's been burning of electricity bills across Europe. You know, there's a whole campaign in Europe or in UK called Don't Pay, I think Don't Pay UK, that already has like tens of thousands of signees that they say they're not going to pay their electricity bills October 1st when, they, when they're supposed to spike hundreds of percentages, percentage points. So this is already happening. And um, I think governments will bend the knee to their citizens because that's the biggest uh, risk is civil unrest domestically. But then they'll have to turn their back on Ukraine or they'll just try to do both at the same time. And just even though the finances don't make sense, they'll try to, you know, print money and, and do this. That's why, you know, all of this kind of leads to the same place, which is just currency devaluation of the euro. And so I think that is the big risk. So you're already seeing it. You're already seeing kind of civil unrest and protests and and these European civilians, they're wondering how we got here, but really it's just poor leadership. It's It's kind of poor energy policies over the years not considering security and resiliency in, in, in a peacetime where leaders weren't really considering that. If there's one like benefit of all this, it will kind of start to shift that mindset towards that, start to shift the mindset sort okay, yes, I guess sustainability and, you know, all these like inefficient green energies, like we also need, you know, nuclear might be a good option <laughs> or, you know, it, it'll kind of shift the mindset because sometimes a, you need a crisis to actually wake people up to these things. And so I think that's another thing. I, there has been so much doom and gloom around the Europe situation for this winter. Like, oh, this is, this is it. Like, it's not going to work. I think it was like way too much that the pendulum shifted way too much that way in terms of general discourse like this is only doom and gloom yes it's going to be really hard but i think there's a probability that they get through this winter and that they band together and people are resourceful people are strong the human spirit's strong but the problem is i don't see how this changes into the summer or next winter or the year after that and so that's kind of where I'm thinking. It's like not so much like the next few months. It's that these dynamics in place and these these relationships, they don't seem to be improving. And so I, it's hard for me to see a scenario where this doesn't continue. And if that's the case, then it's going to be more money printing. It's going to be more subsidies and it's going to be more devaluation of the euro. And so because it just takes years to get these things back on track in terms of energy policy and building out the infrastructure. And so we could be talking about years of, of these elevated energy prices, which would just add to the inflation pressures and make it more difficult for the ECB. So, you know, that's kind of, that's what I would say about that. I think just, you know, creative ways of staying warm are also viable options, but I don't think P agrees with me anymore because he told me not to say that. But I still think, Ooh. oh, okay. Yeah, okay, I was, I, sorry, I was I was just lighting my head on fire on the side, just you know, trying which to I think right like, moment. like why couldn't Europeans just do that? Why can't they light themselves on fire to stay warm this winter? 
cue. I feel like doing that is not actually a viable strategy. I feel like it only gives you like maybe five seconds of warmth and then it starts hurting and then you have to put it out. We're talking about much larger, you know, how do you stay warm as a, as a group of people over a period of time? I mean, when you don't have enough, you know, resources. It, to do so. it seems like this would be a great idea to have alternative energy sources or be energy independent, but no, we decided to listen to a 16 year old girl about how to handle yeah. our energy infrastructure in an entire continent. Like, yeah. I'm, oh God. You know I exactly will, which, you know exactly which buttons to push to get me all, <laughs> all, all riled up. I, I don't know, Sam, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like it, it continues to blow my mind. As I've said before on the show, that the average person across most of the world is absolutely convinced that nuclear energy is not only the bane of our existence, but definitely like a tool of Satan to mutate the, you know, the, the, the creatures of, of this magical planet and also to, you know, feed the fat cats, quote unquote. I just don't understand because it, it is actually such a clean and important way of generating power as we continue to increase the size of our population, I'm just flabbergasted by the effectiveness of the PR that has been put out there. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I'm a big nuclear proponent. I think it's a dense energy resource and it's reliable. You have a reliable baseload. And I think the, I think the, the anti-nuclear, I mean, it stems from like Chernobyl and uh, Fukushima, you know, they're still, they, they see these things and it's bad, but, but also nuclear, like it kind of disrupts the oil and gas industry and the ESG <laughs> renewable industry. So it doesn't really have much lobby behind it, not a lot of money because it kind of disrupts both of them. Right. I mean, like in a way. Oh, interesting. You're saying like oil and gas is like deeply invested, which totally makes sense. Of course, you got to follow the incentives. Yeah. And like, I, like oil and gas, there's a lot of benefits of oil and gas like in our products and things so it wouldn't like go away but it'll definitely eat into their profits to have this like endless base supply of energy from nuclear and so it just seems like you know nuclear has no friends basically in in dc so how do we get those friends how do we create and maybe, maybe if you can just do like a for our audience like a brief summary of like the benefits of nuclear the unfair characterization that it gets and why it's all bullshit well, I'm not like a nuclear expert, but from my understanding, you know, it's just a, it's a it's a way to have actually clean, I guess, zero carbon energy resource that it provides a reliable baseload. So it's 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 not intermittent like wind or solar, which obviously sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's cloudy, sometimes it's windy. Nuclear allows you to have that base, which is really, really important to connecting to the electrical grid. Like you need that base load. And so nuclear does it in a way that's really efficient and and clean. And like people get upset about it, I think, because of like the waste and all these things. But from my understanding, that's kind of way overblown, especially when you compare it to some of the waste in these renewables and, and as well as oil and gas. So that's kind of my short thing. I, I haven't like dug super deep into nuclear. I'd like to one day. That might be good. But but from my understanding, it seems like the best alternative we have and the most one of the most dense energy resources we have available to us. And we're just turning our back to it. And it's strictly from like political reasons or money reasons or just, you know, not understanding what it is. Basically propaganda. 
I would agree with that. I mean, I think there's a, a very important thing that Sam, you've highlighted. We talk a lot about it. It's just who has the ears of the policymakers in DC. And unfortunately right now, there's just not, <laughs> there's not enough money within the nuclear system itself to allow then for someone to be a spokesperson on their behalf. I almost feel like this is almost like the perfect intersection of Bitcoin and energy. And it almost feels like the Bitcoin Policy Institute, which is more or less advocates of Bitcoin and its technology who speak to different policymakers in DC, this should be a part of their docket. So to the founders of that, I hope you're listening because if you're not, I'm just going to yell at yeah. you for not listening to this. Yeah, like yeah do that. I also Get- I, I'll say I, I think there's a ton of money that is required to build them too. So that's like a huge point of it too. There's a lot of like fixed costs. And water. Yeah. So that's another kind of like hold up, I think. I do want to just, I want to ask this because I have a, very aggressive bias when I bring up this and I, I need someone to balance it out a little bit, Sam. So sorry, you've drawn the short straw and you have to balance it this out. I've been pounding this drum since the beginning of this year that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have been sitting down with Iran's president. And while we don't know what those conversations have been, it doesn't take a genius to surmise that two adversaries of the US meeting with a president who is the leader of a country that has been under sanctions by the US are most likely asking this president, how have you guys handled sanctions? How have you guys survived for as long as you have under Western and the US sanctions? And lo and behold, shortly after that, Russia has now been put under sanctions. We're witnessing some actions being taken by China against Taiwan And meanwhile, behind the scenes, we're seeing deals get made between Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, Turkey to release and sell their oil to the European markets, as well as break and destroy the petrodollar and introduce a yuan dollar, Russia accepting Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. You had Iran also announced that they're accepting cryptocurrencies, primarily Bitcoin, to settle international trades. We're starting to see the slow end of the strength of U.S. sanctions. And I'm curious what effect you think this could have on a global stage. Let's first start on the energy side of things. Obviously, countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Russia hold vast amounts of oil and natural gas, as well as the other OPEC nations. But between Iran alone has over 150 billion barrels of oil. For context, again, OPEC plus manufactures about 20 to 25 million barrels a day. So that's a significant amount of oil that Iran just has that it could introduce to the market. All that has to happen is sanctions go away and oil prices go down cost of gas and electricity goes down, this really feels like it's turning into a U.S. sanctions versus the rest of the world argument. There's a degree of that, but now my bias is starting to show, so I'm going to mute myself and unpack and rip apart everything I've just said. 
Well, the economic sanctions and the seizure of Russian FX reserves. You know, I feel like it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. It was like it's like the weapon of choice that the U.S. has used over the last decade or so. There's a book called Treasury Wars that's pretty good that kind of goes over the history of of sanctions and how the Treasury has been used as an arm of basically warfare for the last decade or so. Now, what I what I think makes sense is that one of the consequences of doing that is it basically pushes our adversaries together. It incentivizes them to work together. And and so you got China who makes a lot of things, who is, who's been getting oil on the cheap from Russia. Same thing with India. And they're like, this is great. <laughs> you know, as long as the U.S. doesn't sanction us, yeah, we're getting some cheap Russian oil right now. This is fantastic. And then Iran's just a part of that, right? So Iran has been like, hey, you guys got sanctioned too. Welcome to the club. And so now these are resource-rich countries who we're kind of driving together through our political actions and then the sanctions. And so you got to be really careful and, and think about the long-term consequences of these actions. And then in terms of the sanctions, you know, they, as the world moves to a more multipolar world, multi-currency world, world where you start pricing in these goods in different currencies, it will make sense that the sanctions will become less effective. But I think right now people are kind of underestimating how effective they are um, on Russia. You know, I think the spike in oil prices has caused a trade surplus and brought in a lot of money and kind of helped them keep afloat. But the longer these sanctions go on, I think the more damaging they could become on the Russian economy. And then, you know, same thing with Iran. Like Iran, <laughs> they're not doing well right now. They're there's like mass civil unrest actually came came across my timeline this morning. Since they've been under sanctions, they've had rising unemployment, they've had you know increased inflation, drop in world trade, drop in oil exports, their economy shrunk. So it, it has been effective in the past, and I think it will continue to be an effective tool, but it will lose its power as these countries band together and start to price goods in different currencies. And that's the natural reaction to these things. You know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's what we're seeing happen. And that should be, that should wake people up because if these these superpowers, or at least China and then Russia, and, and they team up and become more friendly towards one another, and then you have Iran, which is, you know, a ton of oil resources, you can kind of see how these them banding together would be, a pretty big, you know, adversary. It, it would be they would be a powerful group to kind of battle against, for lack of a better word. And so, these are kind of just the natural consequences. And I don't know if Biden or the administration administration really like thought through this. It, they did it so fast, like right when it happened, they immediately sanctions seize the FX reserves. And now when they see these things, they're like, hold, hold up, you know. So that's kind of how I see it. I I think it's a lack of like long term thinking which is kind of like a general problem throughout the the fiat world. <laughs> well, you mean they don't have long enough time horizons? I love how... <laughs> yeah, it's the money. <laughs> can can we talk about how P looks like he's uncircumcised right now? <laughs> yeah, I thought I would look way cooler with my hood up, but I was horribly mistaken. But now I just have to roll with it. I feel like I brought this in myself. And it's my I'll join you. I'll make, I'll make you feel... He nah, looks so yeah. much worse. 
You look, look so much worse than I do. You look honestly as bad as you look. You look better than I did with that. Yeah. Sam, I gotta correct you because I I just saw that we're gonna announce that breaking news right now. It's pronounced Iran. We're gonna unpack this though. <laughs> breaking news that Jesse Powell, the CEO of Kraken, is apparently stepping down. Holy shit! Really? Yeah. That's interesting. What's the justification for that? This is a developing story. We're gathering more information, but I just wanted to sort of pass that hmm. uh, headline through. I believe, if I, if I remember the source, it is, oh my God, the Wall Street DB, Journal. The, oh, it's Wall Street Journal is reporting it. Okay, so before I give my insane conspiracy theorist Lovecraftian interpretation, Sam, what is your thoughts? Without knowing anything, I want to hear your, like, don't do any research. Why do you think Jesse Powell is stepping down as CEO of Kraken? You get extra points for the more deranged it is. <laughs> like, I have such a it, Kraken's such a weird company because they're like they do do mm-hmm. shitcoins and they're a shitcoin casino. But then Jesse Powell, he's been a pretty good steward of Bitcoin, and when he goes on news, you know, mainstream news shows and stuff like that, like he's he knows what he's talking about. He's a Bitcoiner, and I believe that it's just kind of. It always confused me that it's a huge shit casino. He also supported Lightning. Like, you know, he does a lot of things for, for, they even did proof of reserves, I think, which was cool. But so I, I thought Jesse Powell was actually a good leader, especially when you compare him to, I would say, his other competitor, Coinbase and Brian Armstrong. I think Jesse Powell was a much better advocate for big, yeah, and Binance. Like when you compare Kraken, Binance, and Coinbase, Kraken, does a lot of things better and a lot of things more right. I mean, let's dig into that though, because I have like basically a hundred and maybe maybe more CZ bots that are just replying to everything <laughs> I post on Twitter. There's what no about bots? I mean, all, all joking aside, I think it is actually an interesting topic. Like, all right, I'm gonna put my hood down. It's too much now. Ugh. Sorry, give me a second. What is it about Kraken that is like when you say that they're doing a better job of being stewards or Jesse Powell specifically? What does that mean to you? It's just kind of like that they support Bitcoin developers. They've uh, built Lightning functionality before everyone. They did proof of reserves. In terms of the messaging, their research is top notch that they put out around Bitcoin, around Lightning. They obviously do other stuff in other cryptocurrencies, but they do a lot more for Bitcoin specifically and uh, education than all those other ones combined, the Coinbase and Binance. I mean, I've dug through Coinbase's entire research and blog website and it's garbage compared to Kraken. And then on the, you know, I just think about this one interview that Jesse Powell did and somebody asked him, it was like Fox News or Bloomberg or something. And they asked him like, where's Bitcoin's price going? And he was just like, infinity. (laughs) (laughs) And you were like, I am all in on Jesse Powell. He's just like infinity. And then she like looked at him and he just like looked back and I was like, all right. like that so that's kind of what i mean man i mean you know i they kind of all about like the free market and we'll let people decide and you know i think they just kind of developed into this shit gun casino they're one of the oldest exchanges they haven't really suffered like a major hack or anything like that which is good you know i don't know they just they do things as best as you can i think if you're gonna get into the shit going casino game fair enough i want to ask though is there a degree of like Nick Carter and sort of his claims that Bitcoin focused or Bitcoin only companies cannot be profitable in the future? Mind you, you're talking to 
three people who work at Bitcoin only companies. Totally so we, unbiased. There, there is unbiased. A, a heavy bias in this, but like genuinely, like there is a degree in which Kraken and Swan overlap and are competitors. However, with Kraken offering the shitcoin casino that Swan does not, I'm just curious if there's a degree of truth baked somewhere deep in what Nick Carter said that if all you care about is making money, there's more money if you are engaging with the broader crypto ecosystem than just being Bitcoin focused. Well, I think that's like completely true that there's more money in the shit coins. I mean, that's like, can't really even argue that there's the amount of money from crypto VCs compared to like Bitcoin only companies, the amount of funding, it's, it's ridiculous. And they make money because of all the marketing and NFTs and, and trading that they promote. And, and so in that sense, yeah, they make more money. I don't know what Nick actually said, but you know, Bitcoin only companies could definitely be profitable it's just maybe not as profitable as the shitcoin casinos because there's kind of like a moral aspect to it now i also think that bitcoin companies will survive because we are dead set focused on one thing and doing it really well and we think about all like the time suck that happens on these other companies that offer all these different coins in terms of their customer service in terms of their what they have to build to support these other cryptocurrencies the educational materials that they have to focus on they, they just get spread so thin and it's such a time suck on their resources, on their time and their resources to support all these cryptocurrencies. And it, it makes it so they can't really do Bitcoin that well, even though Bitcoin still remains a majority of their revenues, like trading Bitcoin compared to these other shit coins. They can't like focus on it because they have to focus on all these other ones that are actually a waste of time. And I think long term, the amount of compliance costs that'll come on these casinos that list these tokens will eat into their profits like crazy because you know it's a long-term game. And in terms of the regulatory risks that they're taking by listing these questionable, you know, securities, whatever they are, you know. <laughs> whatever they are. That that was a very generous characterization. I know. So it, whatever that's how you really feel. Yeah. The the amount of compliance costs they're gonna have in the future and risks. I mean, these are trade-offs that are made from the very beginning. And I think when you're a Bitcoin-only company, you can do it really well. You can be experts in Bitcoin, focus all your attention, give better customer service, build products specifically around Bitcoin. And, and for that, our, our clients like that. And, and so we also attract clients that are Bitcoin-only. It matters to them that we are only Bitcoin-only, like from, an, from a moral standpoint and from a, what they believe in. And I think more and more people will come to that, not only from the information asymmetry, like more people will learn about what Bitcoin is and they'll appreciate the mission, but also as they get burned in shit coins, <laughs> they'll, they'll like hold a grudge against uh, these platforms that, that sold them, you know, whatever, you know, come rocket. And then they'll <laughs> come to a Bitcoin only company because they'll be like, all right, these guys were actually had their best interests in mind. And we're just trying to teach people about Bitcoin and so, and, get people to take their own keys and all these things. So that's kind of like, that, yeah. so, Do you think on. anyone that, that quote unquote invested in come rocket actually was like, this is a solid investment. I'm here to, I'm here to I'd uh, help people for the dead eye and tell me that he thought come rocket was going to be like the next big thing. No, no, no. But, the, dead the, in the, the eye. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. You're, you're friends in need. I'm sorry. But the question is like, do you think the pe- do you think there's anyone who is like, I'm I'm buying Come Rocket, who is like, this is they this were maybe the future of finance. Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, those are the sorriest ones. But I, I think know, most are just like, this is the next Doge. This is going. Well, yeah, I, I, my my hands smell like burning hair right now. I just want to. Well, that, that's your own fault. Like I, I give you no pity and award you no points for causing yourself pain and suffering. <laughs> Like, to be honest, you sound like a shit coiner who's mad he got rug pulled. I know. After, I being, after being told, I'm, like, hey. I'm here shit coining by letting my hands on fire off camera, uh, trying to get the perfect shot. Uh, meanwhile, all you guys get is like some like bullshit. Sam, I want to ask you a serious question. Mary Fuck Kill, Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen, Augustus Carsons. Augustus Carsons. That's the last one. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> Yeah, Christine Lagarde, you can throw in there as like a, a fourth option if you go on. I definitely marry Jerome Powell. Yes, you nailed it. Good, good. That's that is the right answer. I definitely. <laughs> I guess I'd fuck Jenny Allen. I'd probably kill Carstens just because I'm a straight guy. But honestly, I have a very, I really, really dislike Jenny Allen. I, I just, I think she's like the epitome of failing upwards Janet Yellen or Elizabeth Warren who do you hate more Janet Yellen interesting and when you say like epitome of failing upward I mean like is there any other way to be a politician than to do something wrong and somehow still get positive credit for it I mean this is actually I get really pissed off about the lack of accountability but in more general about let's go this is my favorite thing to talk about like so wait before we shift over to like a real a real thing i just want to acknowledge like you fucking nailed the answer to that question you took a a very serious question and you you answered appropriately well way to go let's talk about accountability well i guess i'm more like less i'm more talking about central bankers than politicians or economists in general there's no accountability you know you can be so freaking wrong and it's it's like nobody cares. They just forget about it after three months. But I don't forget about it. And I've been keeping track of Janet Yellen, what she's been saying. And I've read it, books in the past from when she was the San Francisco Fed president and how freaking wrong she is all the time. Like she is batting like, you know, I don't even know, under one, I don't even, <laughs> like not 300, under 100. She is, and then she's like suddenly fails upwards to become the treasury secretary <laughs> like literally the most important role in, in in terms of like managing our country's finances and and it's just it's mind-boggling to me it really is but it just shows that this is more about not competence or the ability to do the job it's more about connections and whether she's gonna go along with what the politicians want it's not about like yeah, she's going to be really good for the economy. It's more like she's going to be really good for this administration. So let's get her in here. And and so I just have a really big problem with Janet Yellen. She's done a lot of harm. A lot of things have where she should have been on it. So San Francisco Fed, perfect example. A lot of the housing crisis like happened in her backyard. It started kind of in California, in San Francisco. And she's the one in like 2005, 2006 saying that everything looked fine. She's also a labor economist. And so when things were going over in the recession, she'd kind of calm everyone down, say, like, no, labor's strong. And then, you know, suddenly unemployment spikes like crazy to the highest it's ever been. And again, then she becomes the 
Fed, Fed chairman. <laughs> so that's what I mean when she says she just fails upwards. But she has great models, apparently. So they just love her. So anyway, that's my Janet Yellen rant. Not a fan. I think she's a moron. And I think she needs to retire ASAP because she's doing a terrible job. And that goes for all these old politicians and old central bankers. I was about to ask. I was like, wait, 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 time out. There's a lot more than just Janet Yellen. Yeah. Just please retire. Like go, go play bingo. Go chill out. Go drink some sweet tea. Like you, yeah. you, you thanks for your service. Crawl You're doing under the porch and die like a hungry ass old person. I get so, it. I mean, there's a good life to be had. All your friends are doing it. Just go chill out. You don't need to be well, in charge of everything right now. That's so I actually disagree with that. None of their friends are doing it. Their only friends are in DC and they're all friends with each other. So it's like, this is the only time we have to hang out with one another. Cause if I don't get reelected, I'm never going to see your bitch ass. Like genuine real conversation that Nancy Pelosi has had with Mitch McConnell is Mitch, my guy, we can't hang anymore if I don't get reelected. So make sure the Republicans either put forward like the worst candidate a man imaginable. So I get reelected or just don't put anyone at all. So I get reelected and we can keep like fucking around in DC. But like my short list of everyone who needs to be retired and then like you guys have seen the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, right? Mm -hmm. It's over 10 years old. So if you've never seen it and I spoil something, I don't really give a fuck. But you know that scene in the third one after like, you know, Gotham like gets destroyed by Bane and you have the scarecrow character who is now like returned as the judge and they're sort of trying all these people. I want that. I want a fucking like crazy apocalyptic type of jury and court case where people like Janet Yellen and Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Chuck Schumer and just all of these deplorables who have leached off of our tax dollars for longer than I've been a fucking live and have become millionaires by leeching off of our tax dollars. Like Dianne Feinstein is 108 years old and somehow still running for re-election in the state of California. I am only going to vote for one position this year and it's going to be to make sure she doesn't get reelected in this fucking state because my God, how does a woman who has been living in Washington, D.C. for longer than I've been alive know what I need as a citizen of California? She doesn't. She knows more what the people who live in the not-a-state state of Washington, D.C. know than she does what the people in her own home state need and mm -hmm. want. But I don't know. I just hate old people, I think. Oh, no. I, hey. Well, that, I, was, that was a bold, very blanket I statement. Like I, <laughs> like if we get Joe Biden be Donald Trump again, two fucking senile 80 year olds running for president, I'm going to rage quit the US. I will oh rage God. quit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I, you know, people say like voting doesn't do anything, like vote with your feet. And, you know, I, I kind of understand that. It's just when the older populations, the voting block just votes more than the younger one. Like, and so they're going to keep voting in the people that are going to, you know, be on their side with things in terms of not reducing entitlements. And the, the older block will always vote in their own generation. <laughs> so what's good? I mean, the, the younger generation could really, if they just went out and voted more, maybe we could vote these old people out and then maybe get some like term limits or something. But 
I just, oh, you, it, it, to me, yeah. it's like, it's insane to me because a lot of them, like just, you know, I don't wish this on any of them personally, you know, I may disagree with them, but like a lot of them are going to pass away like soon, just like by nature. And so how could they care about like what's going on? Even like these bills that they're passing nowadays, like they might not even see the fruition of them. And that's just like mind boggling to me. And so you're kind of, you're not up to the times. You, you don't probably understand technology or anything about where things are headed because you don't care. Cause I mean, you're not going to be there. So I, I just think there's something very wrong with it. And I think there needs to be term limits and I've worked with the old people, man. And like, it's true that your mental capacity goes down. Yeah, I feel that on, on working with old people with no accountability who just do what they want and then make the young people deal with the consequences of their action. But I also, there's a degree of almost foolish optimism. I think I've concluded when it comes to the idea of introducing term limits because really what we're asking is the powers that be to inhibit their own powers and put sort of a like, oh, actually we're way too powerful. So I'm going to give up some of my power and control by introducing this. Or like another thing I love to point out and cite while we talk about inflation a lot on Bitcoin networks and you hear a lot of conversations about what the fuck happened in 1971 and gold standard and US becoming a global reserve currency. The thing I want to highlight and point out is that members of Congress vote themselves they get to vote on whether or not they get a raise. And let me let me ask you guys a serious question. If you were asked by your boss, like if David Bailey just asked P and I, hey, do you guys think you should get a raise? Let me tell you, DB, you do not pay us nearly enough, first off. <laughs> Second off, thank you so much for this opportunity. I love it. So grateful for it. Third, of course I'm going to vote for a fucking raise for myself. And guess what? Congress has done exactly that. Since the end of World War II, they have only ever kept their salaries the same or given themselves a raise. The last time they, they actually took a pay cut was during the Great Depression. So not even during the 2007 Great Financial Crisis, not even during the fucking COVID recession, did Congress sit there and say, hey, maybe we should actually not be taking so much tax dollars and putting them in our own pocket." Now, mind you, I want to ask the other side of this coin. In theory, these are people who are leading the charge on the global stage and making policy decisions for the whole country and quite possibly the whole world as a result. Should they actually be paid a premium to be making these type of decisions, knowing well that they haven't really made the right decision in a hundred and, or I guess... I'd, I'd argue a hundred years was the last time we made a right decision in this country. No, I'm curious. Uh, no, that? no. <laughs> What's that right decision? I, no, I'll say 50 years, 40, 45 years ago, civil rights movement. Mm. JFK? LBJ, no. technically. Technically LBJ. Yeah. That, that's the last right decision I think this country has made. I'm just trying to think about another one. Please, no, no, like, like, stop me. Like, between 1971 or 19, what was it, 65, I believe, 66, somewhere in the 60s, that decision was made. Since then, not a single decision our government has made is actually good. 
And if we want to, I don't know, hold our government officials to a certain standard, maybe we just fucking cut their pay. Yeah. You want to, you want to stay in power forever? Well, guess what, buddy? You only get the federal minimum wage. Yeah. We'll see how many people stay in office then, but I actually don't know. Like, can you do that? I don't know how that you said they vote on it. Would that have to come from like an executive order or something like but How see, this, this is yeah. the issue. If there's an executive order that went down, say Biden said right now, hey, you can only serve two terms in Senate and in House, and your pay is now capped at 100K a year. Any executive order can get overturned with a 75% vote. And again, mm-hmm. I ask you, do we really think the people who get to decide themselves, oh, if I vote nay on this decision, I get to keep my salary and my job the way it is, or if I vote for this decision getting made, I have to take a pay cut and I'm probably gonna have to find a new job very soon. Well, you'll probably get people who end up in office who actually care about it. So yeah, I think that would be an outcome if it's not about money. Yeah. Unless they're just literally power hungry, which could be equally bad. It's <laughs> a lot more of them than we want to admit. Sam, I know you have a hard stop. I want to give you the the final word and comment on just anything we haven't yet discussed. Shill all that you need to shill and tell everyone how they can keep up to date with your witty banter on the Twitter sphere. Yeah, you know, I would just say, you know, I just expect things to continue to be kind of put pressure on the price of Bitcoin, just the general macro. You know, I, I don't know if we've had like the liquidity event that needs to happen in the broader markets to bring on a pivot or anything like that. So I think people should just expect kind of the status quo and continue continued volatility. So that's just what I'll say about the market. In terms of like myself, you know, I work at Swan, so you could go check out my stuff on the blog. I write for our Swan Private. So Swan Private's just a concierge service for high net worth individuals. I write the research that comes out every month. If you're interested in that, we do all kinds of services. You know, if you have a trust, retirement accounts, you know, anything, if you're a business, you can check out Swan Private. And you can hit me up. My DMs are open on Twitter at Sam Kala, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. And I just got to give a shout out to, you know, Swan's throwing a conference, the Pacific Bitcoin conference in LA in November. Um, I think it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a party. We got some great speakers. It's a good time to get out in the warm weather in the winter time. So you can go check out that if you're interested in uh, maybe purchasing a ticket or anything. And, and yeah, so... That's my thing. So you can check me out. I'm on Twitter all the time. So just Sam Calla is my Twitter handle. So you can Sam, find we're hang out in LA. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm dude. Looking for, I'm looking forward to hanging in LA. It'll be fun. Yeah, um, man. It'll be a good time. Thank you as always for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time of week. We are going to cut to a commercial break in just a moment for a new episode of FedWatch. I do want to give a little caveat heads up. I'm going to go and hop on over to Twitter Spaces. The FOMC press conference, I believe, has started or is about to start. And then from there, we will have an ongoing discussion on Twitter Spaces about this. Yes, the the FOMC meeting press conference has, has kicked off. There is the Pacific Bitcoin conference. I do want to remind anyone over in Europe that the Bitcoin Amsterdam conference is kicking off on October 12th. Lock in your tickets now. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off. Ticket prices go up on Fridays. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. 
Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-work shop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day 3 of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.